The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. Welcome to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series brings men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s to discuss food, housing, climate, and health. Our guests are problem solvers, solution makers. They live and work all over the country. Their projects range in scope from local to international. They're innovators and implementers, founders and developers. Learn what their contributions and experiences were and are their challenges, and their successes. Our goal is to spark your discussions among and between generations to inspire action toward a healthy and secure future for all. Living Well into the Future has been on the air for just over a year. Over the past several weeks and months, we have introduced you to men and women who work locally and nationally in rural locations and in big cities. Please let us know what topics caught your interest, what might have led to discussion or action. You can write to us at lwitf22 at gmail.com or on Twitter at lwitf underscore pod. We would love to hear from you. Our current series focuses on sustainability and resilience. You'll meet people with workable solutions who address the many challenges to our health and security due to the extremes of weather, loss of habitat, and loss of biodiversity. Today, we're going to speak with two women of different generations working for the city of San Antonio, Texas. One Julia Murphy is Deputy Chief Sustainability Officer with the City of San Antonio's Sustainability Office, and the other, Allison Haynes, is an intern in that office. Let me introduce you to them. Thank you for taking the time, Julia Murphy, for speaking with me. Thank you for having me on today, Julie. You are Deputy Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of San Antonio's sustainability office. How did your interests and experience lead you to the position you have today? I see that you're an urban planner by training and lead certified. And before that, I might mention that as I was, you were executive director of the <laughs> Green Spaces Alliance. So you've had quite a long history in conservation. Thank you for asking that. And yes, we do share that professional appointment that we both held. I originally started out in the private sector in the business world. And at midlife, I had young children at home. I just really realized that I wanted to devote the rest of my career to primarily natural resource conservation. And I was concerned with the unfettered growth of my hometown, San Antonio, but also I would travel and see things around the world, just different ways being done better, being done worse. And I realized that I wanted to 
work in that area. So I did some research and found the University of Texas's urban and regional planning program and then landed back in San Antonio and was hired by the local government to work on sustainable transportation, where I brought the first bike sharing system to the state of Texas and worked on a lot of related projects on the mission reach and then moved into nonprofit work, as you mentioned, really focused on land and water conservation, which I think is the heart of what I love about this work. But when the city started talking about doing a climate plan, I was fortunately rehired to work on that. And one of the big areas within our climate plan is promoting biodiversity and ecosystem services. So I get a little taste of that, but the two big areas where we're focused right now are reducing emissions from transportation and from building energy primarily. Allison Haynes, a recent graduate of the University of Texas at San Antonio in environmental studies, is now pursuing her master's degree and is interning with Julia Murphy at the Office of Sustainability, as I mentioned. Allison, what got you interested in preservation, in climate change, sustainability? Where did you grow up? I grew up just outside of San Antonio in Bulverde. My family owns property out in West Texas, and I spent most of my childhood up there. There's no running water, no electricity. The cabins were built by my dad and my grandpa and my uncle. Uh, I learned that nature is amazing, and it has so many little magical moments that I got to experience out there. And then I got into high school, And I started to realize that a lot of my classmates had no idea about these magical moments. They had no idea that the earth was capable of all these great things. So I took environmental science one, my junior year of high school, and I was hooked. I was like, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to spend my life. This is amazing. I finished my bachelor's program in May. And UTSA has a really fantastic of environmental science program. I was exposed to everything from water quality, air quality, basic ecology, everything. You had the experience of growing up in Bulverde, which has grown over time. Even How old are you? I'm 22. So even in 22 years, it's gone from a very rural area to quite heavily developed. I used to take Smithson Valley Road to high school every single morning. And from my freshman year to my senior year, the trees just disappeared. It's so sad. Julia, what is the Sustainability Office, how big is it? What's its role? The Office of Sustainability in the city of San Antonio is a shop within the municipality that focuses on the three intersecting rings of sustainability, which are economic development, environmental quality and environmental protection, and equity. We call it the three E's, and that's the classic definition of sustainability. But within that, our main priority right now is delivering on our city's goals around climate action and adaptation. And so we have passed a plan a couple of years ago to meet carbon neutrality by 2050. And what the Office of Sustainability primarily focuses on is looking at initiatives and policy 
that will help us meet those goals. So implementation is not within your purview. It's more of a policy making role. Is that right? That's where our expertise lies. However, I will say that we do have some implementation projects that we have put out in the community as a way to concept test some of these initiatives. So two that come to mind that are recent and that we are actually expanding upon are we have done some cool pavement pilot projects, and that's to mitigate for urban heat island. And we're looking at expanding that across the city. Could you explain that? How do roads affect the urban heat island? Absolutely. As you can imagine, darker colors like asphalt absorb heat from the atmosphere, and that heat is reflected back into our communities. And so if we can find new materials that are one, lighter in color, but also might even reflect back that that heat before it is absorbed, we can mitigate heat island effects that way. And most major cities are grappling with that. San Antonio in particular, we're already a hot city. And so we need to do everything that we can to keep it from getting hotter, which we know it will be due to the climate projections that we have. And so therefore, these products are new. They're being tested in a couple of key cities, hot cities around the country. In Austin, I went to see the new Central Library, and that whole area is new. And I noticed that the streets were, I thought it was cement. They were a white color. Some cement is already light in color, and it's already kind of in some ways a reflective and less heat absorbing product. But this is specifically for roadways. And it's just one of the tools in the toolbox that we're experimenting with, if you will, to see if it works here, if it's gonna hold up, if it actually has a heat relief impact for the communities where we're putting it. And so all of that is gonna be evaluated and analyzed to see if we wanna do more of it. Can you tell me about the planning that went into San Antonio's Climate Ready Plan? It was adopted in October of 2019 after a multi-year process, quite frankly. And we did this plan hand-in-hand with CPS Energy, who was involved from day one. And you can imagine they're a major stakeholder in the outcome and the prioritized strategies that are listed in the plan. I mentioned that CPS Energy is city public service and that it is a city-owned electric utility. That's correct. And so they have been really forward-thinking in many of their energy products. Their energy portfolio tops the list in solar and wind. Those are renewables that we need to move away from the dirtier sources of energy like coal, but that cannot be an overnight switch. Yeah, CPS Energy is pledged to keep the lights on for people and also make it affordable. So they have goals and objectives that they need to meet with their stakeholders. We worked with them to come up with a plan that everyone could get behind in our community and that the policymakers would feel good about passing. And so here we are today. So there was extensive community engagement and that's ongoing. We have not stopped engaging the community because now we're into implementation and we want to make sure that the strategies that are implemented in San Antonio have local impact. Did you hire outside consultants as well? We had subject matter experts that helped guide the formation of the plan using worldwide protocols. And then we also had advisory committees again along the way who were technical advisors who 
were subject matter experts in the various parts of the plan. And then, as I mentioned, the general public was constantly being surveyed and asked for input so that we could make sure that, again, both citizens and the residents of San Antonio had their voices heard. There are two things. There's a San Antonio Climate Ready Program, right? That's what we're talking about. And then there's the American Cities Climate Challenge. Are they one and the same thing? That's a great question. SA Climate Ready is the kind of the name of our climate program, which is also the name of the plan that we just talked about in San Antonio. San Antonio also was part of the American Cities Climate Challenge that just concluded last summer. And we, along with 25 cities across the country, the biggest cities who were showing some movement in working on climate, came together and really this American Cities Climate Challenge, which was funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies, intent was to accelerate projects within those cities to really um, gain a foothold on these climate challenges. And the atmosphere in the country was quite different than it is now, but it did give those cities a jolt in the arm, so to speak, to really get going on some policies, programs, and projects that would hopefully help them reach their climate goals. And most cities in the United States, most big cities, major metroplexes, do have a climate plan. Do you consult among the cities when you were working on it to see what are you doing here, what are you doing there, and get feed back? Because the boundaries of the states are not the boundaries of the impact. Yes, and that was one of the biggest, I think, benefits of being in the challenge was that we could, as a city, look to others who were maybe a few steps ahead of us and speak with them about best practices, lessons learned. And also they could look to us for projects that may, maybe we were a little bit ahead in. And some great relationships were formed that continue to this day. And it was a wonderful opportunity to be reinvigorated around the work and learn that there were lots of really smart people and professionals dotted all over the country who really had this as a priority to to tackle. That's encouraging news. Let's talk about the San Antonio Climate Ready Plan. It's up on the web, the San Antonio Gov web, and in the summary, it has 12 bullet points, and we don't need to speak about all of them, but I think it would be interesting to see how the issues are both universal and unique. Listeners to Living Well into the Future have heard a lot about individual buildings and net zero buildings and green buildings, especially in our episode six, Housing and Climate, and episode seven, Sustainability and Resilient Housing, both of which, if you missed them, are available wherever you get your podcasts. But in this conversation, we're really talking about sustainability on a citywide level. And transportation is something that we haven't discussed previously. With a sprawling city like San Antonio and many others without an adequate public transportation system, what do we do? How does the plan address that? 
Yes, great question. And this, again, is another vexing problem across big cities in the whole United States. I lived in Europe for a while and I didn't own a car or need a car. I loved it. I didn't even realize how wonderful it was until I moved back home and had to travel everywhere by car. And as I mentioned, when I got into this work, I was actually hired to do sustainable transportation. So I learned a lot about making hard decisions around trying to encourage people not to drive or punish them when they do drive. Now we're not there yet. We're a city and a country of cars and highways. So putting some of those difficult decisions in place, like they do in Europe, for example, probably isn't going to take hold anytime soon. But there are other strategies. And some of those are what's called transportation demand management. If we can just eliminate some of the congestion that we experience during rush hour, for example, by spreading people's days out, meaning they can go in earlier or come in later and vice versa when they leave home in the afternoon, or flex time, work from home has been wonderful in the pandemic kind of forced our hand in many ways on allowing that to be a strategy in many businesses that formerly wanted everyone in a central location. Then alternative transportation. So walking, biking, and taking the bus. Those in San Antonio are a little bit more challenging unless you're lucky enough to live very close to where you work or your school. But often we live in very different 20 or plus miles away from your home and where you work. So often that's challenging for people to consider those alternative forms. But since people are gonna drive, most likely a lot, especially in Texas and San Antonio in particular, let's see if we can get them into cleaner vehicles. So we would like to incentivize people through various programs to consider electric vehicles when they are purchasing their next car. And a few years ago, this was, well, we're not, no, not ready for that yet because a lot of people were worried about the charging infrastructure. Electric vehicles were very expensive and just for a lucky few who had the funds to buy an electric vehicle. All of that is changing, I'm happy to say. The current federal administration is incentivizing and putting resources towards a nationwide charging network. Very soon, and in Texas, we will be having charging infrastructure basically every 50 miles on major highways. And then the communities will come in and fill in charging as needed. People can then charge overnight if they have a garage or we're working on looking at people that are renters, how they can charge. And then the cost and the variety of electric vehicles themselves is coming down and getting broader. And so very soon, again, people will have choices around the next vehicle that they might be looking to buy. And there are tax credits that people can take advantage of individuals to help them bridge that gap if they, or maybe it's even already affordable for them, but there's a financial incentive to do that as well. I heard you speak about electric cars on a panel organized by San Antonio's Master Leadership Program. There seemed to be a consensus among the panelists that the adoption rate for electric cars has accelerated beyond expectation. It absolutely has. And I just have local numbers, but I know it's everywhere. And we projected out tens of thousands by 2030, if you can imagine that, of electric vehicles. 
but that number has doubled in the past two years. And so the straight line that was going up is going like this and that's happening everywhere. And again, it's because people realize that these are clean vehicles, they're technologically advanced. And now I can have my choice. I can even get an electric truck if I want to. And so there's really a lot of good reasons to consider an EV the next time around. And another thing that San Antonio has done is also altered its vehicles, right? It's city-owned vehicles. Yeah, we're in the process of converting our own city fleet to EVs where it makes sense. And right now it makes sense for those administrative cars is what we call them for just regular cars. But very shortly, medium and heavy duty vehicles will become more and more available and affordable. So think about front loader trucks or garbage trucks, big vehicles that the city buys and operates. We're not quite there yet, but the technologies here, it just needs to become more competitive with the traditional opportunities. Another issue is protecting biodiversity and healthy ecosystems. What is the approach to that given the rate of growth and spread in this area? That is an area that I am particularly concerned about. And for a number of reasons. One, we have an invaluable aquifer that we need to protect. That's our source of water. But the the aquifer is recharged in land out in the country, so to speak, that used to be open and it would allow the rainfall to fall on that land and to drift into our aquifer increasingly that open space is being developed and that's going to have impacts on our aquifer and the, and any other of the tributaries that provide drinking water for our residents. The other concern, and this is really alarming, I very fairly recently learned about this, in addition to just open space that we need for water and wildlife and iconic Texan views, we also need prime farmland to grow food. And our region of the United States of America across the whole country, and I know you have a big audience, is one of the regions most at threat to losing our prime farmland at a rate that is showing no signs of slowing down. So the American Farmland Trust has done this really amazing analysis, and you can go on their website and look at Farms Under Threat 2040. Just Google that. You'll be taken to a website where anyone can plug in their city, their county, and look at what's going on. And they have analyzed a worst case scenario, a business as usual scenario, and then a way to do things better. If we think about better planning, better policy to conserve that land, this could be not as dire as it seems. But our numbers here in Central Texas are dire and that's one thing that I, any chance I could get, I'd like to tell people about that threat because I think people that live in a city may not have that connection always to the agricultural communities that we depend on. And so therefore it's, that's one of the pieces that I think we really need to focus on. I might mention our first of the living well into the future episode was on local food production and Mark Bittman and local farmers 
talked about the need to have the local farmers to protect the food supply, not to mention the quality of the food and all of the other things related to that. The state of Texas enacted the Texas Farm and Ranch Lands Conservation Program, which works with landowners to put conservation easements on farm and ranch land so that it remains working land. In addition, there are federal programs. Is that something that the city has used or you have seen being effective? The Farm Bill and the various programs that are under the Farm Bill, and that's not studying that all the time, but I do know there are resources for farmers and for land conservation through the Farm Bill. Can it happen fast enough? And is there an administrative burden to get that those funds in to conserve that land? I don't know, because a lot of times the developer with the big checkbook is offering something that's really hard to pass up to a lot of families. But our city of San Antonio has worked with a couple of land trusts in our community to actually buy conservation easements for farmers and ranchers, but primarily to conserve aquifer replenishing lands. And sometimes those aren't necessarily farms, but there, this is a really good model wherein we've been able to actually compensate those landowners for the development rights that they are giving up when they conserve their land. So it's, it is, has been a really successful project. Is that in addition to the aquifer protection program or is that, it, it is? It it's, is that, yeah. So Green Spaces Alliance and the Nature Conservancy predominantly have been the land trusts that have worked with the city to negotiate those deals. There are other trusts working and conservancies working in the state of Texas and elsewhere on a national level and a state and local level as well. And all of those working together are hopefully making progress. We've talked about farmland, but there's also the issue of disappearing tree cover. Yeah. How is that being addressed under the Climate Action Plan? Yeah. But And before I get to tree cover, let me mention one other thing. As you know very well, Texas is part of the central flyway of pollinators, birds, flying things that come through our region. And those flying things perform a really invaluable number of ecosystem services to include pollination, to include eating insects that would otherwise destroy those crops that the farmers are trying to grow, etc. And so those flora and fauna need the place in the our lands to rest and recuperate while they're doing their migratory paths to and fro twice a year through our region and many regions around the United States. So again, there's another reason to conserve land is because we're supporting those living things that support us. Trees are another one. Trees are so valuable. And especially in a hot climate like ours, every loss is felt. And I think our city has struggled for years and years to mitigate trees that are taken out and exactly what that looks like. With a focus on mitigating the urban heat island now, we're looking at all tools in the toolbox, as I mentioned earlier, cool pavement being one of those, but tree cover, essential. And so I believe, again, 
in addition to all the other benefits that trees provide, beautification, air quality, purification, et cetera, et cetera, just the fact that they provide heat relief is the thing that's resonating right now in our community. The developers are able to provide funds in lieu of trees when they cut down the trees. So what is that pot of money doing for for the disparity between the rate of eliminating the trees and the need to keep the trees alive and growing and doing all the things that they do? I think that's that's the rub. We have to have development and economic development, yet at what cost? And so the environmental community is probably up in arms a lot around the value of a tree or nature that's being removed versus the value of the development. And therefore, these planning techniques and policies are put in place to try to compensate for that, but it's not a perfect system at all. And my heart goes with the nature and the trees that are lost, but I totally understand that the community needs to remain competitive and new businesses need to be able to come in and et cetera, et cetera. So there is always this tension, but I think there's a realization and everyone, I think, increasingly realizes that the value of what we're losing hasn't been quantified very well. And once it's gone and we get used to it never being there, what have we lost? And so I really feel like just the emphasis on climate justice, environmental justice, and all of the things that are being talked about now more readily and are making all the headlines is a good thing for all communities because it's going to make our quality of life so much richer if we just take care of what we have and enhance it and value it more, even monetarily, let's put a dollar amount on it. When I spoke with Kathy Zarsky about biomimicry for episode 12, working with nature, she said that perhaps we need to preserve what we have rather than expand and think about that as a way for a healthy society. I had not heard people talking about it in the mainstream. Right. I do think biomimicry is starting to catch on as is regeneration, resilience. Those are words that we're hearing all the time now and people may not understand exactly what they are, but we do know that we feel better when we have are able to interact with nature look out our office window and see green instead of cement. And so, yeah, increasingly, I think those concepts are becoming more mainstream. One of the things that you just touched on was resilience. And I saw that one of the tenants of these 12 points is infrastructure resilience. What does that mean in the context of climate ready? In our region, I'll speak to that specifically. Climate change is bringing more extreme weather events. Now we have always had hot weather, as I mentioned, we've always had flash flooding in San Antonio. We're in flash flood alley, but the intensity and the frequency of these events is increasing because of the impacts of climate change. And so when we have a storm event, which we all love it when it rains, we go outside and 
stand in it. But now the rains are going to be coming when they do come less frequently for rain, but more intensely. That puts a big strain on infrastructure, flooding, bridges, people's ability to get places. It could knock out telecommunications infrastructure, et cetera. Same for extreme heat is very damaging to materials that are exposed in the environment on a continuous basis. I had an early experience to that when we weren't even talking about climate change, but when I developed the bike share system in San Antonio, are these bikes that are big tires and big handlebars for manufacture for anybody to ride. In the summertime, the black rubber handlebars got so hot that they literally melted. You would take your hands off if you could even touch them and they were black. So these bikes were developed in Wisconsin, I believe, or maybe Colorado, not thinking that they could be exposed to multiple hundred degree days, which again, this was over a decade ago. So we've even had more and more of those kinds of days. So that's just one example, a small example of what heat can do, but heat flooding in other places at sea level rise or extreme freezing. We had that happen in Texas, as we all know. And so that that was a doozy. Talk about impacting the infrastructure. That was, yeah. Those are examples of why you need the resilience. How do you accomplish resilience? Resilience in our mind, it's so climate action involves basically two buckets of strategies. Um, mitigation, which is doing things to reduce the harmful emissions that are exacerbating our climate change. And that's cleaner vehicles, like I mentioned, moving to more renewable resources that power our homes and our buildings. That's mitigation, so that's reducing emissions. On the other side of the coin is adaptation. That is adapting to these changes that are going to occur no matter what. Now, are they gonna be big changes or are we gonna be able to minimize those changes? And so adaptation strategies are like, mitigating, I use that word, but impacting the urban heat island so that it's less extreme for people that live in those communities. Making sure we have food and local food security is really important, especially in times of those extreme weather events that I mentioned. And so that all comprises community resilience because we need to be able to weather those storms and then bounce back from them as quickly as we can to resume life as normal. Julia, there's another tenet of the climate-ready plan that I'd like you to explain, and that is the one that says that when we're adding to the environment, we should do it with products that are not destructive. What does that mean? Really, we should try to not buy as much stuff to begin with. <laughs> minimizing our consumption on all fronts, minimizing how much energy we use, how much fuel we buy, how much food we buy. But then we are going to have to buy things. So let's look at what things can we buy that have been recycled to begin with, are made out of sustainable products that are from nearby where we live so that they're not being trucked across the world or the country. Let's look at things that use less water when they're being produced and just an overall awareness around resource conservation. Oh, and 
we've talked about that in previous programs when we're talking about choosing the things to be incorporated in buildings, but you're taking that further. That's being conscious for all kinds of things that we buy. Could be anything from clothing to, I don't know, chairs or furniture or things like that, that thinking about that. Absolutely. To the extent possible. Now, we do know that some materials that are specified or that are requested in green building projects, for example, may not hold up to what is required in that industry. For example, the healthcare industry requires frequent cleaning and disinfectation around all surfaces, including upholstery. So that upholstery that might be green, might not be able to be wiped down 12 times a day as new patients come in, et cetera. So there always is this, again, the tension, but I happen to be, my background picture is actually a giant compost pile that is at the city of San Antonio's compost facility. And our solid waste management department has done a crackerjack job of encouraging people to recycle their organic matter from their kitchens. So food scraps that can be turned into literally, I call it black gold, because it's this rich material that we can return back to our earth and grow nutritious food and plants. And it's stuff that we're diverting from the landfill. And the landfill, as we know, emits emissions for years and years when things are off-gassing for all that time. So to the extent that we can think about things in a circular fashion, the circular economy, cradle to cradle, and think about how's it going to start and how's it going to end up? We don't want it just to go to the in the trash. We want it to become something else, if at all possible. Listeners to our previous episode, Resilience at the Root, will have already heard about the benefits of backyard composting. That's something anyone and everyone can do, whether it's in through the citywide collection or in their own homes. Yes, our backyard composting patch is a wonderful way to get into how you can improve your own world and you can improve your yard and maybe grow a vegetable path as well. I have one, I call my worms that help me break down my compost, my little pets. They're really fun to to take care of and feed. And that's my favorite sustainable activity, I think, of all. There have been some recent legislation that seems to encourage and enable measures to protect the climate. Are you engaged with any of the ones in the recent Infrastructure Act and other legislation? Absolutely. That is one that you mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act is the other big, um, it has an odd name, but it's got a lot of climate-related initiatives in it. And environmental justice, again, is a big priority of the federal government right now. So how do we go into communities where we haven't done the best job of investing in them, in sustainable infrastructure, street trees, shaded and connected walkways, et cetera. And yes, we have our finger on the pulse of those opportunities that are being released literally as we speak. And we have people in Washington, D.C. that are talking with the agencies to find out 
where we can plug in and bring some of that, some of those resources home to do some good in our community. To conclude, are there any other considerations on a citywide level that get translated to action items to citizens, wherever they may be, that you'd like to put forward so we can encourage discussion and movement on them? That's a great question. And I think I know you've spoken with someone of a younger generation. And I want to stress that we hear from young people constantly about how important this is to them. They want the world to be there for their kids and grandkids, and they are inheriting a world with a lot of problems. And so to the extent that we can empower and educate people around just small acts that people can do to make their own lives better, but make them also feel like they're contributing to helping the planet. Things like, again, recycling, but before we recycle, let's think about not even buying stuff in the first place, although we do need to buy stuff. And then just in working with neighbors, looking at alternatives, working with employers on those those alternate work plans to relieve traffic congestion. In San Antonio, we have a public engagement and communication campaign called Who Cares? And it's meant to be a little bit provocative. It's meant to inspire some reaction like I care. And if you do care, we encourage people to go to a website and they can take a pledge to say that they care. And then they're in this um, website where they can get more resources around the things that interest them. Maybe it's electric vehicles and they want to do some research around their next car that they're buying. Maybe they want to map out where they can ride a bike and contribute to sustainable transportation in that way. Or go pick up a free tree the next time the parks department is handing out trees at a community event. Lots of small things that individuals can do. It seems like a lot to tackle, but we are all in this together. And I think if we all work together, we can come up with the solutions that we need to fix some of the problems that we've created. Thank you, Julia Murphy. I appreciate your speaking with me. Julia has left us with a lot to think about, including about the effects on the next generations. So let's turn to the younger person she mentioned, who I introduced at the beginning of the program, Alison Haynes, who has been working as an intern at the Office of Sustainability in San Antonio. Alison, you are interning with city government. Now, what do you see there in terms of the opportunity to impact the future of the city? I think that the Office of Sustainability is so impactful. For example, we have this program called Clean Air for Kids, and we go to schools and we teach kids about how dangerous it is for their parents to idle in the parking lot while they wait to pick them up. And these kids get so excited about getting to go home and teach their parents about, hey, mom, it's important that turn your car off. You can roll down the windows, but you got to turn off your car. So I think that it's small programs like that that have an impact, even if it's not 
actively affecting the whole city that are really going to initiate change from our department. You just reminded me when my kids were little, they came back and it was when they were teaching recycling and they were quite adamant that we recycle. It's awesome whenever you can get kids excited about something sustainable. And the kids teach the parents. Yes, that's the best part. Honestly, it's the best part. Tell me what got you interested in preservation, in climate change, sustainability? Where did you grow up? I grew up just outside of San Antonio in Bulverde. I spent a lot of my childhood, my family owns property out in West Texas. And I spent most of my childhood up there. There's no running water, no electricity. The cabins were built by my dad and my grandpa and my uncle. Um, And I learned that nature is amazing. And it has so many little magical moments that I got to experience out there. And then I got into high school and I started to realize that a lot of my classmates had no idea about these magical moments. They had no idea that the earth was capable of all these great things. So I took environmental science one my junior year of high school and I was hooked. I was like, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to spend my life. This is amazing. You had the experience of growing up in Bulverde, which has grown over time. How old are you? I'm 22. And 22 years, it's gone from a very rural area to quite heavily developed. I used to take a Smithson Valley Road to high school every single morning. And from my freshman year to my senior year, the trees just disappeared. It's so sad. Bulverde Road and Smithson Valley Road has changed from tree line to housing subdivisions. But what have you seen out in West Texas? Has it stayed pristine out in West Texas where you were? There's been a few big changes out there. So in 2019, the person who shares our property line was burning during a burn ban. The fire got out of control. So about 75% of our property went through a massive human-caused wildfire. So watching the land recover from that is definitely eye-opening. I never thought that a fire would affect me so personally, but it burnt down a few of our family's cabins. It burnt down the house that my great-grandparents grew up in. So it definitely gave me a lot of perspective about the damage that people can cause when they're careless. Um It still holds a very special place in my heart, and it's a beautiful piece of property. Something that's changed out there is windmills. There's windmills on all the surrounding properties, and it used to not be like that at all. So it's almost like ghosts hearing the windmills turn. It's very interesting, and it definitely adds a changed aspect to the scenery out there. Is it a wind farm? Are they the gigantic windmills? Yeah, they're the big ones. And they're not on our property, but they're on the surrounding properties. At the crest of a hill? Where our property is, we have those big buttes, and the windmills will be on top of the buttes, and then you walk down into the valleys, and that's where people have their cattle or where we had our cabins and stuff like that. But they're all along these buttes, and at night, it used to be a clear sky. You could only see stars, and now you see red dots speckling the skyline. 
So that that is a change. Is the air as clear? Can you see the stars the way you could? In my opinion, I don't think you can see the stars the way they could. But I think it's mostly light pollution from San Angelo. Whenever you can see more stars than I've seen anywhere else in Texas. But it's definitely different than it used to be. What courses have you taken that have enlightened you and expanded your personal experience in different ways? I finished my bachelor's program in May, and UTSA has a really fantastic Bachelor's of Environmental Science program. I was exposed to everything from water quality, air quality, basic ecology, everything. But I think overall, the two most impactful courses that I took were language, thought, and culture, which is not an environmental class, but it taught me that in order to enact change, you have to understand that people are going to come from di- different backgrounds. You're going to have to introduce them differently. You're going to have to deal with the situations differently. And I think that will help me in my career. I hope so. Awareness is what fuels the efforts, as you said, to conservation and protection of biodiversity in the environment. How do you plan to further that excitement and that understanding that leads people to make the choice to combat climate change and preserve diversity and all of those things? I think that it all stems down to education and how we're teaching people. So I'm in my second semester teaching at UTSA, but during undergrad, I was a peer mentor, so I was a tutor for undergrad classes, and I love teaching. I think that you can connect with people in a way that I've never seen people connect. I think that you're actively making someone's life better by teaching, Um, so I hope that I can make my impact by, by teaching the next generation, teaching youth. And honestly, teaching anyone who's open to learn about it, about how amazing our world is and how important it is to preserve it. A lot of these students out at Western Ranch, they had never seen a deer. They had never seen a cow. If you have, I don't want to say a narrow mindset like that, but maybe an unexposed mindset like that, how can you know the importance of not throwing away a plastic straw or cutting up your body? If you're not exposed to it, if you're not taught it, you just don't know it. You're working on your master's thesis. What's the topic? I'm exploring how exposure to private landowners changes the student's perspective of conservation. Because I think that working in a state where you're working on mostly public land versus like Texas, where a 98% privately owned state. You have to have a totally different perspective and approach to conservation. A lot of these people are pretty stingy about their property and particular about what they're going to allow to happen. So if we're supposed to be building these conservationalists, we need to be able to implement those skills. That's what I'm hoping to prove with my thesis. Um, Are you including techniques To promote conservation? Dr. Matt Wagner, he's on my committee, and he developed a program while he was at A&M 
getting students involved with developing land conservation easements for private landowners. And I think that's what we need to be teaching our students, these practical everyday skills that are going to promote conservation throughout our state. Because they can know all there is to know about water quality, but how are you going to convince someone who knows nothing about water quality or convince someone who is scared their property is going to be taken away? How do you think conservation and the work you've done and what you've seen impacts climate change? At this point, I am in such a small bubble. Here in San Antonio, it's hard to see any positive impact in my eyes. The problem just keeps getting worse. However, I can, the problem is instead of snowballing, maybe it's just slowly rolling now. I think the more we educate and the more tools we give people to fight climate change and to practice conservation, it slows the spread of the disaster that is climate change. You're inviting conversation among generations. Yeah, I hope that I am actively engaging everyone who's part of the solution. It's not just going to happen with the people who are coming into legislation now. It's not going to be fixed by the people who are moving out of the workforce. It's going to be a multi-generational solution. So I hope that I'm engaging everyone who can help. Thank you, Allison. Thank you to our guests, Julia Murphy and Allison Haynes. And thanks to you, our listeners. For the next several months, you can expect to find a new episode every month on the second Saturday of the month. Next month, we'll move from the urban back to the rural as we explore what is being done to promote and encourage human interaction with nature in the lands and forests of Western Massachusetts, and at the same time, address and reduce the damage to natural areas from changing weather patterns and extremes. We'll speak with Jenny Hansel, President, and Doug Brown, Director of Stewardship of the Berkshire Natural Resource Council, which stewards about 25,000 acres of land. Subscribe to Living Well Into the Future wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Please give us a five-star rating so other people can find us. You can find out more information about our guests and links to the entities we mentioned on the Living Well Into the Future tab on the Berkshire Ollie website, berkshireollie.org. That's berkshireolli.org. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play Living Well into the Future podcast. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ollie and WTBR-FM 89.7 FM Pittsfield for their support. This podcast is produced by Julie Copenheffer. Thanks to our production team and our intern, Owen Brown. Our music is written and performed by Michael Copenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests 
and not of WTBR, Berkshire Alley, or the LWITF production team. <laughs>